Brilliant. Okay, well, you know that we have been looking at God's big story all of the year. And as part of that, we have been looking at the stories of, uh, in the Bible, story, uh, we're looking at the minute in Mark. But every single month, we have a story of somebody, an interview, somebody that tells their story. And so this is, uh, this is the Sunday where we're going to be listening and just finding out a little bit more about Cy Parkin. So I wonder if we can give him a round of applause as he comes up. Cy Parkin, this is brilliant. Um, do you want, uh, are the chairs all right here or do you want us to sit more centrally? You want us centrally? Okay, do you mind moving your own chair, Si? Is this all right? I know this wasn't part of the interview thing, but like, here we go. Is it here? Is this all right? Brilliant. Got that pedal's flashing there. <laughs> Is it all right, do you think? Good. Okay, so Si, do you just want to tell us who you are and, you know, a little bit about you? Yep. Hi everyone, I'm Simon Parkin. I uh, have been coming to this church for about 15 years. Um, I lead worship here occasionally. Uh, My job is a freelance journalist. I write for magazines and newspapers, usually longer stories about things that interest me. Um, And uh, I've just signed a new book deal, which is what I'll be working on for the next year. Wow, and are you married? Or tell yep, us about uh, that. I, I'm married to Nikki Parkin, who is uh, a, a teacher um, at uh, Wickbourne Infant White Meadows School, even um, in Wick. And uh, I've got three children um, Huey, Jed, and Estelle. Uh, and last weekend, extraordinarily, Estelle turned 13, despite the fact she was only born two weeks ago. So. Wow, you've got a teenager then. Yeah, apparently. Are you ready for it? No, not at all. (laughs) I'm sure it'll be fine. It'll be great. Um, You say you came to church 15 years ago. What brought you here in the first place to to this area? Uh, So I grew up in South London uh, near Kew Gardens, if you've ever been there. Um, And I went to a church in Richmond called Duke Street. My parents were Christians and... um, it was quite a traditional church, a large pipe organ, lots of Wesley hymns is sort of what I grew up on. Um, and then when I was 13, I went to uh, Spring Harvest, uh, which is a bit like Soul Survivor for maybe slightly older people and younger people. <laughs> and, uh, uh, there sort of got introduced to uh, worship bands a little more like this. Um, that sort of got me interested in music and in songwriting and learning the guitar and I had a wonderful um, pair of um, youth leaders at Duke Street who uh, would take us to events and they actually brought us down here to um, a cutting edge event on the beach when I was uh, young and actually had a poster of um, Tim, your husband, on my bedroom wall. <laughs> Did you? Oh dear. Not just Tim, obviously. <laughs> Uh, now it's just him. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. So next. Oh, good. Um, so yeah, I was kind of you know a delirious fan, I guess. And um, when I went to university in London, I met Ed Hawkins, who many of you will know, and um, 
we sort of were leading worship there at our Christian Union and also we were going to a Church of England church in Pimlico called St. James the Less where we would lead worship as well and I was starting to write songs and together we came down to Littlehampton to record a little EP uh, with Paul Burton who many of you will know um, and uh, yeah, through that I met Andy Harson, who was playing keyboards this morning, and he sort of encouraged us to, um, you know, form a band, I guess, more seriously. Introduced me to Dan Borum, who also goes to this church, uh, and uh, our drummer uh, Mikey Randon. And um, so yeah, because of all those connections, we started a band. And um, w- when I got married, we were like, "Where should we live?" And it's you know, we'd made lots of connections here. Half of the people we played with lived here, so I moved down and. And then Ed and Jenny followed afterwards. Wow, well, that we're glad that you did move down. It's been brilliant. But um, tell us a little bit about how you grew up, uh, about how you became a Christian, yeah. that kind of thing. Okay, so, uh, yeah, like I say, my parents were, were Christians, and so in that way that sort of happened in the 80s, I guess, when I was about five or six, I said a prayer uh, in my bedroom to sort of... Uh, commit my life to to Jesus in the way that you do with the understanding of a five-year-old um, and then the process from there was just one of sort of growing and recommitting re-trying to align my life with with Christ's teachings and um, you know sort of in that way would often go up again to sort of say a prayer at, at events I was at and um, yeah sort of deepened through that at university I studied theology um, because I wanted to sort of understand more about the Bible and about Jesus and also to sort of get some of that in the songs that I was writing at the time um, and then yeah when I was when I was 18 my parents uh, split up it was quite I think it's you know whenever there's divorce it's always quite hard on the kids but this was particularly difficult and traumatic and um, yeah so I sort of found discovered God in a new way through that through that that sort of pain and uh, disorientation and um, you know been continuing to work through that and try to live according to what Jesus taught ever since really yeah wow that's that's brilliant and then you became you became a writer Mm -hmm. Um, do you want to just talk to us a little bit about that process so you've written for some amazing places, haven't you? Like amazing. Tell us about who you, who you write for, mm-hmm. and about a little bit about that process. Okay, so um, I'm, a, I'm a freelancer, so I, I'm free to kind of write for whoever I want to. But principally in the UK, I do my work with the Guardian newspaper, uh, writing for. They have a, a section called the Long Reads, which are sort of very long, in-depth. Uh, reported stories. Most recently I went to Russia um, ahead of the World Cup to spend time with some neo-Nazis who were there who are sort of football fans and who are have co-opted football fans to sort of towards neo-Nazi beliefs and the rise of that in advance of the World Cup because obviously there's been a lot of concern in our country in particular about going to the World Cup. Am I going to be attacked by uh, um, Russian football hooligans, all of this kind of stuff. So that's the sort of thing that I sometimes do with The Guardian. Then I also write in America for The New Yorker, which is a, a magazine out there, and I'm a contributing writer, so it's sort of 
write a bit for them uh, here and there. And uh, I'm also a critic for the observer. So I've got a few, a few, a few kind of things. And, uh, but that was a slow process to get to that point. You know, lots of hard work and, you know, writing for non-prestigious places, I guess, to sort of build up the skills and knowledge to get there. And uh, what did it feel like when you went to Russia? You, was that really a scary experience? How, how did that feel? Because sometimes you're in quite dangerous... You've gone to quite extreme places, haven't you? Uh, how does that feel for you? Yeah, I hadn't thought too much about it with Russia. I kind of thought, oh, we'll go there and I work with a, someone called a fixer, and that, that's someone that, who journalists work with who sort of organise, they're local typically, and they organise meetings with people that are going to be relevant to your story. And she'd organised like a bunch of meetings with football hooligans who you know, would openly say, I'm a racist, I you know, believe such and such or whatever. And so I kind of was maybe a little apprehensive, but then when I finally got out there and you're sort of confronted with these views and also people who are choosing to live their lives in that way you know there was one guy in particular was, he was quite charming but also very frightening character you know he kind of carried a very long knife that he was playing with while we were just eating you know cupcakes or whatever and uh, you know, sort of trying to tell me about his beliefs and it's all quite frightening he actually took us out to remote woods where they organize hooligan fights as sort of training places and at that point the fixer was like you need to let me know like where you are on google maps at all times and check in every 15 minutes and yeah i think like i think when you suddenly get there and you're confronted with that situation and you're sort of walking into the trees you're like oh hang on maybe this wasn't such a good idea but um but you know at its best i think the function of journalism is to sort of expose corruption in the world. It's to inform people about what they need to know. And um, that's sort of, you know, why you, why you do these things and go to these places. Because there's a sort of important, I guess, moral duty to it on some level. Wow, that's incredible. And, and you've also, like, this was probably in the earlier days, but you would like write about games wouldn't you as well did you tell us a little bit about that yeah so how I started as a writer was I um, had an idea for a magazine while I was still at university uh, when I was a teenager I'd read record collector which some of you might know it's for people who are into records and vinyl and it sort of tells you which are the rare ones and all of that and uh, I enjoyed that magazine and thought it would be great if there was sort of a video game version of that I was into games and so, so I wrote to a, a magazine publisher and um, so I said, you know, what do you think about this idea? Could I maybe, uh, you know, run that for you or something? And uh, I didn't know what I was doing. And they invited me to their office and I had a meeting with them and they said, you know, explained how much it costs to launch a magazine and get it in WH Smith and sort of put a dampener on that idea. But they said, why don't you write some freelance, you know, words for some of our existing magazines? And that's really how I started. So, yeah, for the first few years, I mainly wrote about technology uh, because that's how I got into it. So you played a lot of games then, did you? Yeah, great, yeah. Uh, this is a very important question, right? Do you play Fortnite? Yeah, I was an, an early adopter of Fortnite. I love Fortnite. I think it's amazing. I play it with my Does kids. Does everybody know what Fortnite is? So Fortnite is a game that came out sort of last summer, and it's, it's sort of the big phenomenon at the moment. You may remember Minecraft was the big game about five years ago. Today it's Fortnite. Everyone under the age of 15 probably plays Fortnite. Um, I won't get into how you play it, but yeah, it's fun. <laughs> I like it. There's lots of stories in the mainstream press at the moment about how it's causing our children to become addicted and all of that nonsense. So, 
But let, well, why why do you think that's nonsense then? Uh, <laughs> Is that too long a story, really? Because, uh, because there's... Uh, let's just not. Let's not. <laughs> Anyone who wants to know that, ask him afterwards, all right? <laughs> um, brilliant. I loved it because my mum yesterday said to me, um, Becca, she said, I think I should watch Love Island some of the time so that I understand what my grandchildren are into, right? And then she said, but I don't think I'll be able to get into Fortnite. <laughs> but ne- never, too, never too late for Fortnite. <laughs> too late for Fortnite, yeah. Um, so you write, you write lots of the songs and you write some of the songs that we sing. Um, t- can you just talk about like worship songs and how you see that's developed over the years and you know sometimes people say to me oh why aren't we singing you know more kind of straightforward songs about Jesus and about you know like like we would have in the old you know back 20 years ago why aren't we singing those sorts of songs and I know that you've got some really interesting things to say about that so what why what, what do you think how do you think that's developed like the way that we worship over the years especially thinking about the words lyrics. that we use yeah we're de- i think we're definitely in a moment where lyrics tend to be a little more poetic perhaps at times um so one of the things if you write for the internet today um the publication can track all sorts of interesting data. So firstly, they can see how many people are clicking on an article, but more than that, they can also see how long you sit and you read the article for, whether you use the scroll wheel to go down. So they know not only have, you know, I don't know, 50,000 people read this article, but they also know whether they actually read it or they just clicked on it. So my job as a, as a writer is to try to get as many people who click on a story or open a newspaper to make it to the end of the story. And there's a bunch of techniques you use for that. Um, which I won't go into, but but one of the things that turns people off when they're reading, that causes them to sort of you know move on to read something else, is uh, the use of kind of cliches or things that are very familiar over familiar. So, as a as a writer, you're constantly trying to avoid sort of figures of speech because they just bounce off people and it causes them to stop stop kind of reading and being engaged. And it's to do with um, you know, over-familiarity sort of makes you complacent. It, it sort of makes you think, well, I already know this. And when you're complacent, it sort of stops you from being engaged. So you're constantly trying to find new, interesting ways to say things. Um, one of the ways that we talked about at, at um, Arkyard, which is the thing Tim runs for so- so- songwriters, is how can we find like new words, new phrases to express old truths to make them come alive again? And um, you know, a good example of like a cliche, like if someone comes up to me and says, "Where do I get a coffee after the service?" and I might say, "Well, you know, you can get one round the corner at the kitchen. It's just a stone's throw over there." So rather than me saying like it's 50 meters round there, I'm saying it's, you know, if I chucked a stone, you could go and get a coffee. Now you sort of know the distance. Now that's like a figure of speech that we're all like incredibly familiar with now. So we don't even catch the sort of beauty in that statement. Like the first person who said. Uh, something is a stone's throw away. They were kind of a genius, right? Because it's such a beautiful picture. Um, so as a writer, you're trying to find these new ways to sort of communicate old trees. And I think that's what we're seeing a lot in songwriting at the moment. So you need to sort of think of a few examples, like a song like Reckless Love with that line, um, he leaves the 99. 
Now that's sort of a very old truth. It's based on like Jesus' parable about um, how God will leave the 99 sheep. He's the good shepherd. He'll leave 99 to go and find the one that's gone astray. And that's you know, a very kind of interesting lyric. It sort of pricks your ear, doesn't it? You go, oh, that's an unusual line. I'm not used to hearing. Uh, another one is um, heaven meets earth like a sloppy wet kiss, which is maybe a little more controversial. I know some churches refuse to sing that. But again, there's something beautiful about that image, maybe, where like, in the, it's trying to re-express something that's very familiar. I see it in pop music all the time. I was watching a great interview with... Um, a songwriter who wrote um, Shape of You with Ed Sheeran and he was saying they wrote that song very quickly and when they were in the studio Ed was kind of putting down his lyrics and he had that line um, and my bed sheets smell like you and the co-writer was kind of like oh, are you sure you want to say that should we should we change that it's kind of like it's like an, a picture but it's maybe a bit gross or something and Ed was like no it absolutely has to be that line and when you first hear that song we've all heard that song a billion times but the first time you hear it that's the one that really jumps out right because it's so unusual so I think there's a good sort of principle there and then if you look back at the hymns from a hundred years ago they were constantly doing this like a song like um uh, when I survey the wondrous cross right that line um were the whole realm of nature mine that was an offering far too small love so amazing so divine demands my life my soul my all something like that like that's not in the bible he's Isaac Watts I think wrote that and he's He's written this amazing piece of poetry that just brings to life all of these biblical truths in a new way. And like it's still got power to today, 100 years ago or whatever. Um, and to, to sort of back up why I think you're on solid ground doing that, if you look at what Jesus did in his teaching, he would often like talk in parables, right? Uh, these are like stories that he basically made up to re sort of draw out a truth to like take a truth that had become a cliche that we've become people have become sort of dull to it's sort of a way of polishing that up again and go no look at it again and um um I think you can imagine sort of the church leaders or the Pharisees in the back with their arms crossed going, well, why is this guy making up a story? We already have the law. We already have God's word. We don't need this like silly little picture story to express that truth again. But Jesus is doing it because we get sort of dull to it. A good example of this, I'll shut up in a moment, but a good example of this is like um, the Good Samaritan. So that's a story that I think even if you're not a Christian, you've probably grown up knowing that story, right? So just to, to sum it up, a guy's walking along a road, he gets mugged, he gets beaten up, left for dead, all of his belongings are taken. And then sort of a series of well-to-do people come and some of them switch over to the other side of the road, they all basically leave him for dead. And then this one guy, the Good Samaritan, comes along and he sort of picks him up, checks him into a hotel, pays for him for the night. And we sort of, you know, in 2018, we don't really like know what a Samaritan is. Um, so we just see that story as like, oh, that's a story about how we should be kind for people who are in need. But actually, like, if you look at the original context in which Jesus was telling that story, it's like incredibly provocative. The Samaritans were the, the mortal enemies of the Jews at that time. So like, you can imagine if he was retelling that story today to, to Jews in Israel, he would, it would be like the story of the good, uh, the good um, Palestinian. Or like if it was here, it might be 
the story of the good uh, benefit cheat or the good sort of asylum seeker or like depending on your point of view like the good UKIP candidate or something like that like someone who like you as a listener sort of personally look down on you would be uh, he's sort of and he's not doing that to say hey like we need to rethink about like the Samaritans we need to like you know reappraise what they're like the point is he's pointing a finger at the listener and going beware looking down on other people that you think you're better than uh, because very often they might have like caught one of God's truths that you've missed um, and sort of we miss all of that don't we because it's become a cliche again but if you go back and look at what God was uh, Jesus was doing in that moment he's telling that parable to sort of bring alive God's word and to go stop being complacent like this is what it's all about and um, that's why we sing funny words sometimes <laughs> I think that's absolutely brilliant yeah um, one last thing that I was going to ask you. There have been times, you've led worship here for a long time, haven't you? And there have been times that you've led and are in complete vulnerability. What, how do you lead um, when you feel vulnerable sometimes? How, just talk a little bit about that in your journey. Um, yeah, so, well, a, f- a few years ago, uh, I was going through a particularly rough patch um, uh, Nikki and I were in, were in marriage counselling and I was in therapy and a lot of stuff that just needed dealing with, I guess, that I hadn't dealt with was sort of coming to the fore and sort of, I guess, in that process, God was trying to set things straight that were crooked in me or whatever. And, uh, you know, we would meet regularly and talk and um, I would still sort of, even in that, that valley, I guess, I was still leading worship here and... Um, I think there is, yeah, like sometimes I would think, I don't know if it's sort of, maybe I need to sort this stuff out before I can get up on a stage and do that kind of thing. But then at the same time, there was just an immense, I felt an immense closeness to God in that period of my life because I was able to sort of worship in this very difficult place um, and I was able to uh, bring that to God in my worship and meet him where I was, or he would meet me where I was. Um, and I think as well, sort of particularly with music, when so many of the songs we sing in church are about um, God's grace, his faithfulness, his being there for us when we're in the valley, and when you, that is going on in your life and you are singing about it and bringing that as your offering, there's something incredibly pa- like magical almost happens in that, I think. I watched, um, I'm sure many of you have seen it, the James Corden video that he did with Paul McCartney this week. You know, it's Carpool Karaoke. And he came out a couple of days ago. But you know James Corden, whatever you think of him, he like, will sometimes get in a car and drive around with a pop star. And he did it with um, Paul McCartney this week, and it's a really amazing 20 minutes. In that, like, Paul McCartney talks a little bit about the song Let It Be, and he says that when he wrote that song, he had a, he had a dream. His, his mother had passed away. He had a dream. He was like, full of anxiousness and fear and like, worry about how the world was going. And like, he met his mother in this dream, and she said the words, just let it be. And um, when he woke up, he sort of remembered it. He wrote it down, and then he wrote this song. And then like, in the car, the two of them sing it together. And, you know, I'm sure, like, James Corden's heard that song a million times, 
but because he had the context of like what that song was written in, he sort of you know, tears up and sort of loses it a little bit. And um, I think songs are incredibly powerful when you connect what's happening in your life to what you're singing about. Eric Clapton's song, like Tears in Heaven, it's a very pretty song, but when you know he wrote that song after his like, little son died, it like, takes on a whole new power. Like Taylor Swift, when she's singing about her latest breakup or whatever, that takes on a new power when it's coming out of a place of actually I'm hurt and I'm damaged or whatever in this. So I think that some of that is true in church, just as it is elsewhere. And I think people maybe connect with that when we're all worshipping together and you're on stage and you're being truthful with where your life's at and you're singing songs that reflect that and we do that as a community and corporately there's tremendous power in that wow wow so i think you're brilliant you you know yours uh i know that not many people will know those things about you and i know that you uh, don't shout about those things, but I think you've got such wisdom and I thank you for your vulnerability and just for your words. been amazing. Let's give them a round of applause, shall we? Thank you. Oh, is there anything else?